Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 50 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. Today's episode marks the 50th time we've taken our expedition into the gaming wildlands, and I cannot be more excited. I thought about starting a podcast as a hobby for a long time before finally getting to it, thanks to some nudging from my wife. A year and a half later, we've made it to our first milestone episode. A huge thank you to everyone who's listened along the way, and if this happens to be your very first episode of the Retro Wildlands, I'm really glad you decided to take a chance on this little project of mine. Go ahead and make your way over to the campfire, my friends. We have the usual libations, but Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, insisted that we bring out the good stuff for today. He's been sniffing legs, organizing our treks into the wilderness, and keeping me on task. And after 49 successful outings, it is time to celebrate. But while there's plenty of reason to celebrate, Dee Dee let me in on a crisis situation that needs our immediate attention. The nuclear weapons disposal facility on Shadow Moses Island, in Alaska's Fox Archipelago, was attacked and captured by Next Generation Special Forces, being led by members of Foxhound. They're demanding that the government turn over the remains of Big Boss, and they say if their demands aren't met within 24 hours, they'll launch a nuclear weapon. I know it seems like a job for someone else, but unfortunately there is no one else. The fate of the world is hanging in the balance. Didi's already geared up, so finish up your drink and let's do the same. Just what exactly are we getting ourselves into, you might be wondering? On today's episode, we're checking out a video game that has had a massive impact on the gaming world and potentially beyond. A video game that pushed the original PlayStation to its limits and showed the world that games can be much more than just bleeps and boops. Considered by some to be the definitive cinematic gaming experience, combining action with blockbuster movie-quality storytelling, as well as an experience that everyone needs to have. It was also criticized for having a bit too much of that and not enough actual gameplay. For a game released back in 1998, though, the world hadn't seen anything like it, and I argue, we never will again. We never will find a way to replicate that initial wonder and awe this game invoked in us when it first launched. And for me personally, after coming off the original Resident Evil, I was very excited to see gaming move towards story-driven experiences, and this one pulled me further into this awesome hobby that I love so much. Today, on the Retro Wildlands, we're talking about Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid is a game that will always have a special place in my heart. The original Resident Evil on the PlayStation was the game that truly got me into gaming when it showed me that video games weren't just things to pass the time, but actual experiences that we could be immersed into. From there, the industry was finding ways to make gamers have fun, but also tell a good and memorable story in the process. 
When I played Metal Gear Solid for the first time with my stepdad, both of us were just in awe of the quality and just the sheer spectacle of it all. The game started out with cinematic cutscenes and movie-quality voice work that made us feel like we were watching an actual movie. More than that, though, we were in the movie when we got to move and sneak around, doing our best to make sure we stayed out of sight and stayed on mission. We had a support staff of weapons specialists, medical advisors, and survival experts in our ear at all times, and it was very easy to fall into the shoes of the game's hero, Solid Snake. Plus, it helped that Snake's voice work was done masterfully by David Hayter. Snake was the quintessential action hero, a man who was an expert stealth operative and a ruthless trained killer. He kept his cool in stressful situations and always knew exactly what to do or say to get the job done. Metal Gear Solid will go down as one of my favorite games of all time, and its influence on the gaming world is undeniable. However, this game came out in 1998, over 25 years ago. It has been about that long since I've played Metal Gear Solid, and I often find myself wondering if this game can stand next to some of the modern greats, or if the cinematic, bombastic nature of Metal Gear Solid was nothing more than a passing fancy. So, I decided to replay this game and see if the game lived up to the legend. Is Metal Gear Solid a game that stands the test of time? Or is it just a tired old warhorse? Today, we're going to find out as I share with you my thoughts and experiences with this game and recall some of my favorite childhood memories as I tried to save the world from the comfort of my cardboard box. Real quick before we move on, I wanted to talk about spoilers. In previous episodes of the podcast, I tend to split up the spoilers and non-spoiler talk in an effort to give anyone who hasn't experienced the game a way to listen in about it and not have any major things ruined for them. On today's episode, however, I have chosen to classify this episode as a full-on spoiler cast. I'm not going to ruin everything this game has to offer, but it was nearly impossible to write a script on this game and not talk about plot specifics and specific moments, so you are at risk of spoilers from this moment forward. Some of our listeners submitted comments had plot points in them as well, and I wanted to make sure that I could give those people an opportunity to speak on those as well. Now, if you're new to the show, I'd like to take some time to chat it up with you all a bit and give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands before we get into the game talk. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about what's going on with the podcast itself, what games I might be playing, what's going on in my personal life, any projects I'm working on, and whatever else I feel like holding a Metal Gear Solid-style codec conversation about. I'll also read and respond to any comments that I received about Metal Gear Solid when I put a call out for them on our social media. Now, if none of this sounds interesting to you and you're just here for my thoughts on Metal Gear, no worries, you can skip ahead about 15 to 20 minutes and you should get into the game talk. There should also be timestamps in the show notes so you can see exactly where you need to go. But feel free to stick around. 
If you're in for the long haul, we're going to relax a little bit first and set the scene with a little gaming talk, and you'll get to hear your fellow Wildlanders contribute their thoughts on this tactical espionage action game. It'll be a great way to get things rolling, so without further ado, let's jump into our opening segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchup. I'm going to try and keep this week's campfire catch-up on the shorter side if I can help it today. We got a decent amount of comments from the community on Metal Gear Solid, and I anticipate this episode being one of our longer ones, so I don't want to go off on too many tangents today. I did want to thank everyone one more time for all the support that you've shown me and the show over the last year and a half. I love making this show, and while it's been a fun hobby, I've been mostly thankful for the people that I've met along the way, and I'm proud looking back on all that I've created so far. Our first few episodes were pretty cut and dry, but they've evolved into a fantastic presentation using music and sound, and I am loving our format right now. However, putting together these episodes the way that I want to is not a quick thing. There's the script writing, the recording, isolating music and sound from the games themselves, the editing, the publishing, the promotion, the social media. In all actuality, while I sound pretty outspoken on the podcast, and I mostly am in my day-to-day, I most often prefer silence and being left alone in my own little space. Sometimes I even get a little anxious about my online presence. Many of you take the time to comment on posts or reach out to me in various ways, and I stress about getting back to everyone or making sure that I'm supporting those that have supported me. The podcast as a whole is helping me put myself out to the world a bit more and do things I wouldn't normally have done, and I'm really glad I decided to take the leap. More than that, though, I'm extremely humbled that people all over the world have taken their time to listen to this show. I seriously thought it would be immediate family and maybe a close friend or two, and that would be it. But I am excited to see how many people listen to each episode when I launch them. It's not a huge number or anything, but it's certainly higher than zero. I've said it countless times in the past, but I have no expectations with the Retro Wildlands right now. I have hopes and dreams, sure, but right now, I'm enjoying building this brand up a little at a time, and I have you to thank for all the support. I am pumped that we made it to 50 episodes, so thank you again. Alright, no more of that today, I promise. I just, I can't contain my excitement, this is awesome, I never thought we'd make it here. But anyway, in other news, I am juggling a few video games right now. First, I finally decided it was time to play through The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on my Nintendo Switch. I've brought it up a few times in the past, and I probably won't bring it up again since I don't plan to do a show on it, unless you all want me to one day. But I did want to say that I am having a great time with this game. I sometimes feel like I play the game incorrectly at times since I find myself dying a lot but I love the dopamine hit I get when I unlock parts of the map, conquer another shrine, or surpass a challenge that was holding me back. 
I've barely done any story-related stuff, but I've put about 30 hours into the game so far. Rarely do I find my time wasted, though, and I continue to have a blast. As far as other games go, on my new PlayStation 5 that I got for Christmas, thank you, my lovely wife, I've actually popped in the Resident Evil 2 remake, and I'm giving that game another run. I completed it 100% back when it first launched in 2019, but I had a good reason to give it another whirl. I have been asked to be a guest on a podcast coming up in the near future, and I'll be discussing the RE2 remake. So I wanted to give myself a refresher and maybe even earn some new trophies in the process. I have to say, Resident Evil 2 Remake was amazing on the PS5, and I've been pretty impressed with the Pulse 3D headset that Sony makes for the console. Whenever I can, I prefer gaming with a headset, which is a great way to immerse myself in whatever game that I'm playing. Using a headset to play the RE2 remake was awesome. The Pulse 3Ds were pretty sweet too. I'm really impressed with the sound quality. What really made me impressed with them was any time Mr. X was in the game somewhere and stalking the halls. It seriously sounded like he was somewhere in my actual house. Anyhow, as soon as I can share some more information on my next podcast guest appearance, I will certainly keep you all in the loop. Lastly, I've been playing a handful of retro titles and trying to decide what's going to be our next episode. Since I've been playing Breath of the Wild, I decided to try out Zelda 2 on the NES. It's one I never played, or at least I don't remember, but I have been very curious about. I've also been playing Top Gun on the NES as well. I really want to cover that game and the sequel on the Nintendo at some point on the show. The original Top Gun is my favorite movie of all time, and while I often wonder if anyone really cares for the games, I have always wanted to talk about them. Finally, I've been playing Russian Attack on the Nintendo. It's a side-scrolling action game that I feel like was remade at some point, can't quite remember, but it was also one that I've just been kind of curious about. I don't hear very many people talking about Russian Attack, and I don't know much about the game itself yet, but I've been having some fun with it here and there. Gameplay is tight, and it's one of those games where, if you lose a life, it is 99% your fault, and you just need to do better. While I got done talking about how I wanted to create a schedule for future episodes, I want to make sure that I'm making episodes for games that I'm genuinely excited to talk about, instead of just phoning it in and putting something on a list. Whatever I decide on covering, I'll probably post something over on our social media pages when the time comes. So speaking of really quick, if you don't already follow the Retro Wildlands on social media, make sure that you do. We have a link tree that you can go to at linktr.ee forward slash retro wildlands that you can go to in order to see all of our socials in one place. But I'm on all the major platforms Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, Threads, YouTube, and recently I was able to join Blue Sky. So check us out on any of those platforms. Any platform is a good way to get a hold of me directly if you want to chat or give me any direct feedback about the show, 
but it's also the place where I put a call out for comments on the game or topic that I'm going to discuss next on the show, and I'll read and respond to those comments during Campfire Catch-Up. So if that sounds like something that you'd want to do, or you just want to spice up your timelines and feeds with some retro spice, throw us a follow. It's 110% free, and it would make me feel like a million bucks, so head on over. Alright, that is all that I really wanted to get into this episode as far as what's going on in my neck of the woods. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's start transitioning to the reason that you're all here today. It is time to talk about Metal Gear Solid for the Sony PlayStation. We received some community comments about Metal Gear over on our social media pages when I put a call out for them. I am pretty sure I captured all of them, but if I happen to miss yours, I deeply apologize. So starting us off is going to be Philip, who reached out over on our Facebook page. He said, MGS is still one of my favorite games of all time. Was the first game I played with awesome cutscenes which made it feel like a movie, and the gameplay was top-notch. Absolutely, Philip. While cinematic story-driven games are much more commonplace nowadays, back then, the sheer scope and spectacle of Metal Gear Solid was unique for the time. The music, the sound design, voice acting, all of it. This game made it feel like you were playing a movie, and while you can argue director Hideo Kojima wanted to make a movie more than he wanted to make a video game, you cannot deny how amazing it was back then, and even today. While Kojima created more games that really went off the deep end when it comes to story, I argue that the first Metal Gear Solid was a pretty good balance between the moments that you sit back and watch the story unfold, and when you're partaking in actual gameplay. Does it all still hold up today, though? I think it mostly does, and we'll definitely get into that more as we go today. Thank you very much for submitting a comment, Philip. Much appreciated. Dave, who also wrote in on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page, chimed in and said, The reason why many of us back in the day owned a PlayStation 1 was because of how great this game is. For sure a must-have. I couldn't agree with you more, Dave, and if we didn't already have a PS1 in our household, I can guarantee this is the game that would have got us one. The original PlayStation had plenty of system sellers, in my opinion. Final Fantasy VII was probably the biggest one, along with Gran Turismo, Tomb Raider, and Crash Bandicoot, just to name a few. I would even go so far to say that the first three Resident Evil games probably had a hand in getting the PS1 into homes. The mid to late 90s is when developers weren't just taking advantage of the system's hardware for game design, they were experimenting with new ideas and messing around with different genres. Games like Parasite Eve, Boshido Blade, and Brave Fencer Musashi, for instance, are some awesome and unique games that we'll probably never see again today, or anything even close to resembling them. Another solid reason why Metal Gear Solid still stands tall among the rest. Thank you for writing into the show, Dave. I appreciate the comment. Hopping over to our Twitter slash X page, the What The Famicom podcast spoke up about Metal Gear Solid and said, 
replaying currently for the first time in 20 years. That torture scene is hell on my thumb. Snake flirts with everyone, and Master Miller sounds exactly like Liquid, so how no one figured it out is beyond me. <laughs> All of those are extremely valid points. I loved but hated the torture segment of the game because my thumb and even my wrist would start to hurt. But did you know, if you have the vibration function of your controller on, during your second codec call in the prison, Naomi will have you put your controller on your arm and she'll make the controller vibrate to soothe your arm? Snake, put the controller up against your arm. What? Don't worry, it'll feel good. Huh? Okay, here I go. How does that feel, Snake? A little better? How did you do that? I stimulated your muscle fibers with the nanomachine cilia. That's about all I can do for you. Oh yeah, it is amazing. I do enjoy the fact that Snake is pretty much a horn dog in this game as well. Here's a couple snippets of his smooth talking. How did you recognize me in disguise? I never forget a lady. So there's something you like about me, huh? Yeah, you've got a great butt. Oh, I see. First it's my eyes, now it's my butt. What's next? On the battlefield, you never think about what's next. <laughs> Just perfect, but beyond all of that, you're also 100% right about Master Miller. The first time I played this game, I was genuinely surprised at the big reveal. I felt betrayed, and I was just completely shocked. Even though Liquid and Miller sounded pretty much the same, I just assumed it was the same voice actor for development reasons or something. I mean, the DARPA chief and the cyborg ninja were voiced by the same person, so it could happen, right? My friends at the What the Famicom podcast, I appreciate you reaching out and interacting with the show. And if you listening have not checked out the What the Famicom podcast, Go do that, and tell them Nomad sent you. Staying on Twitter slash X for a moment, Jay, who is one of the co-hosts of the Waffling Taylors podcast, had this to say. It doesn't feel like 20 years since I first played this, one rainy after-school afternoon. Hiding in cardboard boxes, footprints in the snow, which was an achievement all its own, and weird storylines and bosses. It's all here, and it's wonderfully fun to this day. I might be wrong in saying this, but I feel like Metal Gear Solid was one of the first games to incorporate some of the little things that are just commonplace nowadays, like footprints in the snow, for instance, or even wet footprints on the ground after you walk through a puddle. The guards in this game will notice them and leave their pre-programmed routes to follow them. I remember being blown away by this when I first encountered it, but equally as horrified watching a guard start to follow after me. What voodoo magic was this? And the cardboard box. The best item in the entire game for no other reason than it's something that you can use. Nothing seemed to beat hiding in one and watching a guard come up to you and seem confused by what they saw. Just when you think they might discover you, they look at the box for what it is. Just a box. And then they would walk away. Absolutely amazing concept. But more than that, it's the kooky story and the unique boss battles that will always make Metal Gear Solid truly a one-of-a-kind experience. 
Thank you for writing into the show, Jay. It is always a pleasure and a joy to hear from you. Heading back to our Facebook page, William left us this comment. I was lucky enough to have a Symphony of the Night save on my memory card the very first time I played this game. Made the Psycho Mantis fight one that I'd never forget. We are definitely going to be talking about that Psycho Mantis fight in the heart of the episode, but that fight still stands today as one of the best, most unique boss encounters ever. Just the concept that the game would use the PlayStation system to show you Mantis's psychic powers is and was unreal to me. While it didn't quite work for me, since I didn't have the right games on my memory card, I love that Mantis would call out specific games, and just like you said, Castlevania was one of them. You like Castlevania, don't you? I have to imagine that was an incredible thing to see and experience back in the day. More than anything, it really speaks to the creativity of Kojima and the rest of the development staff to think of and implement such a novel way to immerse the player further into the game experience. And we're going to be talking about Mantis and how he moves your controller with the power of his will alone. Believe that. Thank you so much for the comment submission, William. Our next comment comes from longtime Wildlander Curtis, who reached out on Facebook. He said, This was such an impactful game in my youth. It had so many cool quote-unquote firsts and innovations that made my friends and I go, Whoa. From the first real fast travel system in an action game, to the first real stealth gameplay, <laughs> those boxes, ha! to cigarettes that reduced your health but could let you see infrared beams, to the infamous awesomeness of Psycho Mantis messing with your controller and reading your memory card, he knew I played Castlevania Symphony of the Night and Sui Coden, to forcing you to look at the physical game case to find the codec channel that you needed to progress the game, to even the multiple endings, there were just so many incredible things about this game. To this day, I am so glad I got to play this game when it came out, when it was absolutely unique, and nothing like it had ever existed before. All of that was incredibly well said, and I do not have much to add. Those of us lucky enough to have played this game when it originally released had it really good. It really was a one-of-a-kind experience that practically had no equal. It's easy to forget that a lot of the modern gameplay mechanics that we enjoy today all had to start somewhere, and you can argue many things started with or were near perfected thanks to Metal Gear Solid. Sure, I could argue there's better stealth games now or better story-driven experiences, but if you take a moment to step back and really look at this game, even today, there's a level of creativity and passion put in by the developers and even the voice actors that make this game something special. While it's near impossible to recapture that magic from 1998, the echoes are still present today. I love discovering all the little nuances of this game. Using cigarettes to see infrared lasers was a perfect example like you mentioned. While there's a codec conversation that you can listen to that gives you a hint about this particular game mechanic, you really had no idea that you could do this, and some people I know never really found out about this. 
But what always impressed me was how it worked in the game and how the laser behaved believably when smoke went through it. Nothing special by today's standards, but certainly mind-blowing back then. But I will say, while hiding a radio frequency you needed in-game on the back of the physical game case was pretty innovative, my stepdad and I did not pick up on the game's hint, so I ended up going through codec frequencies one by one in order to progress the game. I was so pissed initially, but once I figured it out later, I was more in awe than I was upset. I mean, how can you possibly be mad at a game like this? Thank you for submitting a comment to the show, Curtis. I always appreciate it. Our last comment comes from our Retro Wildlands Threads page. Uncle330 wrote into the show and said, Yes, finally! I've been racking my brain about the Metal Gear Solid series. I just beat Sons of Liberty and Snake Eater, but the one before that I've been lost on. I cannot wait to hear that podcast. Well, wait no further, my friend. I think gamers have differing opinions on Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, and MGS3 Snake Eater, but I think both games are great if you're into these sorts of stealth experiences. They certainly aren't for everyone, though, and I think I find myself falling in love with them only because I had nothing but time to play them when I was younger. But I'd be curious if those two specific games hold up today as well. I would love to play them again for the podcast, so if that's something that you would be interested in, Uncle330, and anyone else listening, just let me know. I'm glad that you're excited to hear the podcast today, so without further delay, let's get into it. And thank you for dropping a comment, by the way. I really do appreciate it. Originally released on September 3rd, 1998, Metal Gear Solid is the story of Solid Snake and his one-man mission to Shadow Moses Island where terrorists have seized control of a nuclear weapons disposal facility and are threatening to launch a nuclear strike if their demands are not met. What makes the situation even worse is that the terrorists are being led by members of Foxhound, a special forces group that specializes in covert, solo sneaking missions. Members involved in the terrorist attack include Psycho Mantis, with his powerful psychic abilities, Sniper Wolf, the beautiful and deadly sharpshooter, Decoy Octopus, Master of Disguise, Vulcan Raven, Giant and Shaman, and Revolver Ocelot, specialist in interrogation and a formidable gunfighter. And finally, in charge of them, Foxhound squad leader, Liquid Snake, the man with the same code name as our hero. What could it all mean? What are the terrorists after, really? Well, Wildlanders, it's going to be up to us to find out and put a stop to it. So let's suit up. Slip into your sneaking suits, tie on your bandanas, and don't forget to smuggle out your pack of smokes in your stomach. The fate of the free world hangs in the balance, and it's going to be up to us to save it. Our skills and our conviction will be tested. And while an enemy with a gun may seem like our biggest threat, it may very well be our past that gets the better of us on this mission.
Back in 1996, when I was 12 years old, I was living a pretty unassuming existence. It was just me, my mom, and my stepdad, and life was good. While my cousins would come and visit from time to time, I was an only child, which is a big reason why video games made such an impact on my life at such an early age. I wasn't a kid who gamed 24-7 or anything, but our Super Nintendo and my Game Boy Advance certainly got some use. But the magic that was my Nintendo systems was starting to wear off just a little bit. The games I owned I had played to death, and my mom and stepdad were certainly no gamers themselves. While my stepdad would occasionally throw down with me and we'd play a bit of Super Mario World together, I could tell he was just doing it for my benefit. For a man who was working a factory-type job and putting in 45 to 50 hours a week, Mario and Yoshi's charm and appeal could only go so far. But all of that changed one day. I can't remember when exactly, but I feel like it was a little after Christmas of 1995. My stepdad brought home a new game console. It was a little gray rectangle, and the games you played on it were on CDs, not cartridges. It was the Sony PlayStation, and while I had no idea at the time, that little gray rectangle was going to change the very course of my life. I can't remember what games we originally had for the PlayStation when we first got it, but I remember not playing it very much. The PlayStation was very much my stepdad's console, and it's not like he kept it from me or anything. It was just one of those things that he had earned and he wanted to appreciate. The PS1 was leaps and bounds ahead of our Super Nintendo, and I quickly assumed it was an adult system that I'd get to experience when the time was right. A few months after we got the PlayStation, my stepdad brought home Resident Evil. At first, I was not allowed to watch the game being played, let alone play it myself. The game was apparently extremely violent and gory. You can hear more about this in our very first podcast episode where I talk about Resident Evil, but long story short, I was eventually allowed to play Resident Evil and I ended up beating the game while my stepdad and I played it together. That game was single-handedly responsible for turning me into the gamer I am today, and a large reason for that was due to the overall experience that I had with it. I learned that video games could be so much more than they already were, that they could tell awesome stories and make me feel things that other games at the time just couldn't. Needless to say, I was properly invested in the PlayStation from that point forward. We had a video game rental place not far from us, so we were constantly renting new games. In 1997, my stepdad had heard about a revolutionary new game with a sprawling story experience called Final Fantasy VII. When he popped it in, he was in awe of the game's opening. But as soon as he got into the very first battle, he found out that RPGs were not his thing. I have to wait my turn to attack? What the fuck is this? That little bar is taking forever to fill up. Here, you can play this fucking game. I'll save the specifics for when we eventually cover Final Fantasy VII on the show, but this moment was another important one in my life. This is where I really started to love RPGs, and this is where I got to experience a story unlike any other at the time. I was in heaven. 
I had found my story-driven masterpiece. I didn't need to chase it in books or watch a movie to be immersed in something bigger than myself. Once I finished Final Fantasy VII and watched the epic story conclude, I remember thinking that there was no way it could get any more immersive than this. And then we rented Metal Gear Solid. I can't remember if my stepdad had heard about the game or just took a chance on it, but I remember him being really excited when he brought it home. The first thing I remember was the thick jewel case that held the game's not one, but two discs. The front was all white, and the red letters of the logo stuck out beautifully. Above them, the words Tactical Espionage Action were the cherry on top of this mysterious and enticing game. The back of the CD case was where all the action was. Multiple screenshots showing Snake, the main character, sneaking around, fighting enemies, talking on the radio, and even a shot of what looked like a ninja? The graphics looked amazing, and there was even a call-out that the enemies in this game reacted to sight and sound. But what really caught my eye was that mature ESRB rating, which called out animated blood and gore, animated violence, and mature sexual themes. I think I was just as excited as my stepdad in that moment, but not for all the same reasons. I was thirsty for another story-driven experience, and Metal Gear looked like an action or a spy movie. I could not wait to see this game in action, so one night after dinner, he and I sat down together and dove in headfirst, having absolutely no idea that this game was going to change everything. When most gamers think of Metal Gear Solid today, they remember it for a lot of different reasons. Most commonly, though, being the involved and slightly convoluted story, and how that story was presented to the player. Metal Gear is quite literally an interactive cinematic experience, and it's presented like you're watching a high-budget blockbuster action movie. The game's visuals were incredible, and they practically pushed the console to its limits. I remember this game being one of the first that used the PlayStation's DualShock vibration feature, and I'll never forget how it felt when a helicopter flew over our heads in the game. The vibration in my hand really brought the game to life in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And while I didn't really appreciate the game's soundtrack until I was much older, it did a fantastic job of creating that spy movie feeling whenever you were sneaking around and did a good job of getting your adrenaline pumping when you found yourself in battle. But what always stuck with me, and something that absolutely holds up today, is the game's voice acting. Every piece of dialogue in this game is voice acted by an amazing cast of characters. Up to that point, Resident Evil's voice acting was my benchmark, and after some of the awesome scripted moments in that game, there was no way it was getting any better than that. We went from this... Better take it with you. But how about you, Barry? I have this. Thank you. I'll take this then. To this. We were conducting exercises with a new type of experimental weapon. A weapon that will change the world. What? A weapon with the ability to launch a nuclear attack from any place on the face of the Earth. A nuclear-equipped walking battle tank. Metal Gear. It can't be. 
While the campy voice acting is almost charming in its own right, you cannot deny the step up on quality. There is not a single voice or line of dialogue that doesn't sound amazing or fun to listen to. David Hayter, the man who voiced Solid Snake, is just an absolute legend in my mind. I could listen to that man read a phone book all day. He absolutely nailed what this character was supposed to be, and I found myself just locked in any time he was speaking. As a 14-year-old playing this game, I could not think of a better role model. But more than anything, when we look back on Metal Gear Solid today, we remember it for its story. Anyone who's kept up with the Metal Gear series over the years knows one important thing about the narrative. It is absolutely and hopelessly convoluted and oftentimes makes little to no sense to the average gamer. The man who created Metal Gear and directed Metal Gear Solid, Hideo Kojima, is very well known for his rich and deep stories. He loves to lean into the supernatural as well, but what I always found interesting is how we as the player just accept the supernatural as a normal part of the world that he's trying to create, and we do not question it. If you caught the tail end of our campfire catch-up segment, I listed off all the names of all the bad guys. I can almost guarantee that if you've never heard this roster before, you probably didn't bat an eye when I mentioned Psychomantis, a man with powerful psychic abilities. You probably just accepted it, and that's how this sort of thing goes for the rest of the narrative. It's certainly strange, but this world is written in such a way that it makes sense, and I always appreciated that from the story. It all starts with you trying to stop a band of terrorists from launching a nuclear weapon, but what unfolds is so much more. So at this point, I think I've done plenty of initial setup here. Metal Gear Solid is a game that is best experienced firsthand, so it's almost time we grab Disc 1 and pop it into our PlayStation. But before we do, a quick word on spoilers in case you skipped over the intro of the show. There are parts of this game that I want to talk about that will spoil the story for those that haven't played this game before. If you've never played Metal Gear Solid and you think you might, do not let me spoil the story and some of the set pieces for you. Stop the podcast right now, go play Metal Gear Solid, and then come back to the campfire and then we can chat all about it. I still think there are things about this game that are best experienced blind, and I encourage you to do so, especially if you can do so on an original PlayStation. I'll get into why I think that matters in a little bit. Anyway, does all that sound good? Alright, let's get into the trenches on this one. Let's start peeling back the layers a bit and see exactly what it is that we're working with. So... What is this game? Metal Gear Solid is a third-person action-adventure stealth game developed and published by Konami. This game is actually the third game in the overarching Metal Gear series, coming after Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. These two games were originally released on the MSX2, a type of home computer released back in 1983. I know absolutely nothing about the MSX, so I'm not going to dwell on that fact. However, Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 have been made available to play today in several forms. 
First, they are included in Metal Gear Solid 3 Subsistence, the expanded version of MGS3 Snake Eater on the PlayStation 2. Most recently, they were included in the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection Volume 1, which dropped in October of 2023. Metal Gear Solid makes some callbacks to these games, but I argue you do not need to go out of your way and play the older games to get the most out of your experience. Though I can see how that would enhance some things. Metal Gear's story setup is pretty simple at first. Terrorists have seized control of a nuclear weapons disposal facility and are threatening to launch a nuke if their demands aren't met. Enter Solid Snake. He's a legendary operator who excels at solo sneaking missions and has gained quite a reputation publicly and in the Spec Ops community. While the initial setup of the story is pretty simple enough, the story is pretty rich and the player has the option to dive headfirst into the game or take about 20 minutes and learn about the mission, the key players, and everyone's background before heading into the mission itself. What makes Metal Gear Solid so intriguing from the offset is the story and characters you'll be interacting with, so I think we should meet some of them and then put boots on the ground and get on mission. Let's put the game in our PlayStation, power it up, and get to it, shall we? When we grab the CD case, we'll notice this game comes with two discs. The game itself isn't too terribly long, I finished my first run in about 10 to 11 hours, and that was me taking my time. A lot of what's crammed on these discs are all the voice lines and wonderful cutscenes, all rendered using in-game graphics and assets. Oh, and speaking of the CD case, make sure you leave that out so you can access it later. It will become important a little ways into the game. The CD case? Why am I going to need that? Don't question Hideo Kojima, listener. Just trust me on this. When we power up the PlayStation, we're met with the warm and comforting sounds of the boot screen. Oh yeah, gives me the tinglys every time. From here, Konami's logo appears on screen. That one always makes me smile too. Growing up, that jingle always made me think of Metal Gear Solid, but did you know that that jingle you just heard is actually from the intro to a game called Police Knots, a game released in Japan by game director Hideo Kojima. You should check out the intro on YouTube, it is actually pretty cool. Anywho, from here an opening cinematic plays and gives you a quick and dirty plot summary. Right off the bat, I can guarantee, if you saw this opening back in 1998, your mouth was probably hanging open just a little bit here. The graphics looked incredible as you're taken through the interior of a submarine as Colonel Roy Campbell explains the situation. Right away, you're pulled into the experience and we haven't even hit the start button yet. Once the opening cinematic is over or you press the start button, you're taken to the game's title screen. 
The game's logo is at the top of the screen, and the red and green background moves in such a way that it's almost 3D-like. Solid Snake is featured on the screen, and all of it together really gets you in the mood to be tactical and sneaky. From here we have several options. Obviously, New Game will get us going, but if we really want to get into the story, we can scroll down and select Briefing. I actually missed that this was even a selectable option the very first time I stepped out and I played this game. Selecting this will take you to a sort of video recording where Snake, Colonel Campbell, and Naomi Hunter, who's the chief medical officer of the Foxhound unit, get Snake up to speed on the mission and get into granular detail about the mission and all players involved. It's certainly not required viewing, since all told the videos together are about 20 minutes long, and that's a long time to not be playing the game, but the scenes are expertly voice acted and really flesh out the game's story and universe. Everyone here does a fantastic job voice acting. David Hayter as Snake, Jennifer Hale as Naomi, and Paul Eating as Campbell. Another fun fact, did you know Paul Eating voiced the narrator in the original Diablo? Anyway, before we deploy on mission, let's jump into a bit of the briefing and set the stage for the experience to come. Snake, listen up. It all went down five hours ago. Heavily armed soldiers occupied Shadow Moses Island, a remote island off the coast of Alaska. What soldiers? Next generation special forces, led by members of Unit Foxhound. They've presented Washington with a single demand, and they say that if it isn't met, they'll launch a nuclear weapon. A nuclear weapon? I'm afraid so. You see, the island is the site of a secret nuclear weapons disposal facility. Foxhound hijacking a nuclear weapon? Now you understand how serious the situation is. You'll have two mission objectives. First, you're to rescue the DARPA chief, Donald Anderson, and the president of ArmsTech, Kenneth Baker. They're both being held as hostages. Those are some heavy-duty hostages. Secondly, you're to investigate whether or not the terrorists have the ability to launch a nuclear strike, and stop them if they do. Any questions, Snake? Questions? I haven't even said whether I'd accept this mission. Well, you can make up your mind after you hear more about the situation. So that there was pretty much the basics. From here, you can search specific topics about the mission, such as learning more about the hostages, the facility, and who exactly it is that you're going to be going up against. Speaking of your opposition, one of the things that really makes Metal Gear Solid unique are all the bad guys. The members of Foxhound that are mentioned in the briefing are all people you're going to be fighting in some capacity in the game, and they are all unique and distinct from one another from a presentation standpoint and a gameplay standpoint. One of them specifically is going to rock Snake's world, and it creates a fantastic carrot for the player to pursue. High-tech Special Forces Unit Foxhound, your former unit and one that I was a commander of. An elite group combining firepower and expertise. They're every bit as good as when I was commanding them. So they're still around. There are six members of Foxhound involved in this terrorist activity. Psycho Mattis, with his powerful psychic abilities. 
Sniper Wolf, the beautiful and deadly sharpshooter. Decoy Octopus, master of disguise. Vulcan Raven, giant and shaman. And Revolver Ocelot, specialist in interrogation and a formidable gunfighter. Looks like a lovely bunch of folks. Too bad we'll be meeting under these circumstances. And finally, in charge of them, Foxhound Squad Leader, Liquid Snake. Liquid Snake? Yes. And you're the only person who can stand against him. While all the members of Foxhound are awesome in their own rights, it's Liquid Snake that really steals the show for me. He's voiced by Cam Clark, the same man who voiced Leonardo in the 1987 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, and he does a masterful job bringing this maniacal madman to life. In the beginning of the game, there's quite a mystery around Liquid Snake. Who was this person and why did he share Snake's codename? Snake wonders this aloud to the colonel. Liquid Snake. Liquid Snake. The man with the same code name as you. Here's a photo of him. <gasps> Pretty shocking, huh? His skin tone is different, but otherwise you two are exact duplicates. I have a twin? I don't know the details, but it seems so. That's why we really need you for this mission. You're the only one who can beat him. Now that I've met you, I know got something that he doesn't. I can see it in your eyes. Why don't I find that thought more comforting? Taking a step back from it all, it is hard not to marvel at all of the setup and spectacle. You can continue to go through the rest of the briefing files if you'd like, but I'll leave those for you to discover and experience. As it stands, the terrorists have given a 24-hour deadline for the government to meet their demands, and that was five hours ago. The clock is ticking, and it's time to get moving. Back at the main menu, we select New Game, and then we need to choose our difficulty option. If it's your first time playing, I think the normal difficulty is just fine. The game is a decent challenge, but shouldn't be so hard that you get frustrated. On harder difficulties, you take more damage, hold less items, and you can't use the game's in-game radar to see and track enemies. We'll get into the radar system in a little bit, but for now, let's select normal mode and get to it. If you watched the opening cinematic or caught the rest of the briefing files, you'll know that our insertion method is through the cold Alaskan waters. We'll be shot from the submarine in a swimmer delivery vehicle, and then we'll make our way to the facility through an underground passage. The game opens with Snake swimming to the surface after he's ditched the SDV. The presentation is on point as the graphics showcase the effects of being underwater beautifully. Snake peeks his head out of the water and scans his surroundings. We see a close-up of a guard in white arctic gear. He's armed to the teeth, and we're going to need to take him out or avoid him completely. As Snake comes out of the water and removes some of his diving gear, we're given an overhead view of the area, which contains a lot of metal containers. Near the back of the area, we hear someone speak. We see Liquid Snake addressing a guard as he ascends an elevator, presumably to the surface. It certainly sounds like Liquid knows we're coming, which is just fine. 
We just need to make sure he doesn't see us coming. After Snake gets situated, he drops to a knee and jumps on his codec, which is basically his radio, and contacts Colonel Campbell. This is Snake. Colonel, can you hear me? Loud and clear. What's the situation, Snake? Looks like the elevator in the back is the only way up. Just as I expected. You'll have to take the elevator to the surface. But make sure nobody sees you. If you need to, contact me by codec. The frequency is 140.85. When you want to use the codec, push the select button. When we need to contact you, the codec will beep. When you hear that noise, press the select button. The codex receiver directly stimulates the small bones of your ear. No one but you will be able to hear it. Got it. Okay, I'm ready to go. After the codex screen closes out, Snake gets to his feet and control is given to the player. Alright, Wildlanders, it is mission time. If it hasn't been made apparent, the name of the game is Stealth. As we make our way through the game, we want to do everything that we can to avoid discovery by the enemy. In areas where enemies are present, they'll typically follow a patrol pattern, so if we're patient, it's fairly easy to hunker down, watch the enemy, and discern their patterns. An enemy will discover you if they get too close to you and see you. Depending on the difficulty, the enemy's field of view may vary. How can you tell what that field of view is? If you look at the top right-hand side of your screen, you'll see a radar that gives you a top-down view of your surroundings. The bright dot in the middle is you, Snake. The red dots are your enemies, and the blue cone shape represents their field of vision. If their field of view comes in contact with you, you'll be spotted. Let's make sure not to let that happen, especially in the very first area of the game, okay? Alright, let's move. Using the directional pad, Snake will move in the direction that you press. No ancient tank controls here. One thing to note about moving though, Snake does not have the ability to walk, so you'll always be moving at Snake's full speed, which is sort of a swift jog. As we move, we'll come across a pipe that stretches across our midsection. We can't seem to move past it, but there has to be some way to move forward. One piece of advice, if you ever find yourself in-game at a point where you aren't quite sure what it is that you need to do, don't forget that you can use your codec to call a member of your support team. Let's actually give that a try right now. Push your select button and the screen will change to the codec view. The last frequency that you use to talk to somebody will be displayed up on the screen, so for us, the kernel's frequency is already up. 140.85. Hit the circle button to make a quick call. Snake, you have to crawl to get through there. First, crouch down by pressing the crawl button, and then use the directional button to crawl in the direction you want. Be careful though, crawling is slow and you can't attack when you're doing it either. You can stand up by pressing the crawl button again. Awesome, I have to say that was pretty helpful. The game takes itself seriously, and when it gives you advice, it frequently breaks the fourth wall in doing so, and I always love that. 
The crawl button can be remapped, so that's why the kernel didn't tell you specifically what button to press. In our case, though, it's the X button. Press the select button to close the codec so we can get back to the gameplay. Now push the X button to crouch, then forward on the directional pad. Snake will get on his stomach and crawl under the pipe. Excellent work. You are a true snake already, crawling around on the ground. Press the X button again when you're clear and you'll go back to a crouch. And then again to stand. Perfect. When I initially played Metal Gear Solid, I started to worry at this point that the controls were going to be clunky and convoluted. I mean, look at everything that we just did to crawl. And while I think the controls overall can be a bit clunky, especially by today's standards, I think you can get used to them pretty quickly. I mean, look at me, I am not the best gamer out there, and if I could get used to them, so can you. Now that we've surpassed our first major obstacle, we'll need to make our way to that elevator in the back. When we move forward, we'll have a few paths that we can take through the containers. We can either go straight ahead, or we can make our way to the right. Oh shit, look at the radar. A blue cone is coming down the path in front of us, meaning a guard is headed our way. Ah crap, quick, move forward to the wall right in front of us. If you hold the directional button forward, Snake will put his back to the wall. With your back to the wall, you can slowly walk to the corner of the straightaway, and the camera will swing down and give us a view down that straightaway, almost as if we're peeking around the corner. This little trick is going to come in handy as we play, and from a presentation standpoint, there are a ton of camera views that you won't see unless you're putting your back to a wall. A lot of these specific views give you glimpses of things and views that you would not see otherwise, so just keep that one in your back pocket. Anyhow, hold your position against the wall for a moment. The guard will stop just short of us before taking a big old yawn. He apparently does not care that Liquid said that someone would be through here, but that's going to be to our benefit. After the yawn, he turns around and heads back down the straightaway. The radar in the corner doesn't show you the whole room, just your immediate location, say maybe 10 or so feet around you. While we can assume the guard is going back the way he came, we can use first person view mode to look towards him and make sure. If you press and hold the triangle button, the camera will change to first person view and you can check on the guard this way. This is another useful technique that you'll need to be able to use to be successful on your mission, so don't be afraid to use it to look around a little bit every once in a while. Just be warned though, you cannot move or use weapons in first person view. Some weapons though, like the sniper rifle, will put you into first person view automatically, but those are special circumstances. So the first area here isn't too difficult to navigate, so long as you keep an eye on your radar. But you also want to make sure you watch out for standing puddles of water. If you walk over them, your boots will start to make a splish-splash noise, and if a guard hears it, they'll come to investigate the noise. What was that noise? God damn it! what did I just say? Get yourself out of sight now. While this is something that's very common in games today, 
it was almost unheard of back in the day. The guards can hear actual noises? Holy crap! Metal floors will also make loud noises, and guards will react in the same way, so you have to be on your toes. But, speaking of noise, you can use it to your advantage. If you press your back to a wall and then press the action button, or the circle button in our case, Snake will knock on the wall. If a guard hears it, they'll come over to investigate. You can use this little trick to pull a guard off their route and then sneak around them. How frickin' cool is that? When we get to the elevator in the back, we discover that it's still at the surface and we have to wait for it to come down. Even though we've made this discovery for ourselves, the colonel insists on calling us over the codec to tell us. If we ever get an incoming call, a red icon that tells us to hit the select button will flash on screen. It's possible to ignore the call and let it ring if you aren't in the mood, but some codec calls are mandatory and the game will answer the call for you. Snake, there's an elevator there you can take up to the ground. You'll just have to wait for the elevator to come down. You'd better hide somewhere. Roger that, Colonel. Get used to the Colonel and others telling you how to do basic things like climb up ladders, use an elevator, and even tie your own shoes. Anyway, there's a forklift to the right of the elevator and it makes for a pretty good place to hunker down while we wait for the elevator to come back. Head on over and just be mindful of your radar so no one gets the drop on you. When you get to the forklift, you'll more than likely notice something behind it. Suspended off the ground is an item box. To collect items, all you need to do is walk over them. When you do collect it, the word ration pops up on screen to let you know what it is that you grabbed. Rations are used to restore your health if you take damage. Just like real life, bullet holes are best healed by eating food, so make sure that you keep an eye out for more rations. You can only carry so much of a specific item, so you can't hoard everything that you find, so keep that one in mind. <sighs> this elevator is taking forever. While we're waiting for the elevator to come down, a quick word on how the game's inventory works. You'll probably have noticed that, other than the radar, there isn't really anything on screen as far as HUD elements go, which is really nice. When we have items in hand or equipped, their icons will be at the bottom left or right hand side of the screen, depending on the type of item. Items you collect fall into two categories. Items slash equipment and weapons. If we hold down the L2 shoulder button on the controller, gameplay will stop and the item window will open. As you scroll through your items, descriptions of what they do and how to use them appear in the center of the screen. All you need to do is use the directional pad to select the item that you want to equip in your hands and then release the L2 button. There you go, easy as that. Right now, the only items that you have on you are a pair of binoculars, the ration that you just grabbed, and a pack of Snake's favorite brand of cigarettes. Nothing we need to use right now, so no need to equip anything. Weapons work the same way. 
press and hold the R2 button and the weapon window will open. Right now though, we don't have anything, but once we do get our hands on a weapon or two, we'll be back in this menu in due time. When the elevator finally makes its way down to ground level, it brings with it an additional guard. Just be patient and wait for your opening, and as soon as you're able to slip past him, jump on the platform and it will automatically start to head to the surface. At this point, the screen fades to black and a cutscene of Snake on the elevator begins. Snake takes a quick moment and looks around as the elevator starts to move to the surface. Under the glare of flashing red lights, Snake removes the last of his scuba gear. He finishes by tossing the metal mask to the steel floor, and we get to see Snake's face for the first time as he stands up. With his signature blue bandana across his forehead, the camera pans back as Snake looks directly at us. In this moment, the title screen appears. Metal Gear Solid. Oh yeah. As far as video game openings go, Metal Gear Solid is pretty high up there for me. I always get excited when I experience it, and it just has a way of psyching me up. I remember when I played this game for the very first time with my stepdad, I could see the sides of his lips curling up into a slight smile. And this man does not smile often, or at least he didn't back in the day. <laughs> we had the surround sound blasting downstairs, and we were both hooked at this point. How realistic was this game going to be, and what sort of dangers would we need to overcome? We both eagerly awaited the next scene, like a couple of kids waiting for their favorite show to come back from a commercial break. Once we make it to the surface, Snake takes a good look around and realizes he's outside, and somewhat in the open. He hides behind a metal structure, and then kneels down to call Colonel Campbell and give him an update. I'm not going to go into granular detail here, but it's at this point that Campbell and Naomi go over the mission parameters with Snake again and set the stage for what's next. This is where you also meet another part of your support staff. Wow, he must be crazy to fly behind in this kind of weather. Who's that? Oh, sorry. I haven't introduced you two yet. This is Mei Ling. She was assigned to us as our visual and data processing specialist. She designed your codec, as well as your Soliton radar system. Contact her if you have any questions about either of them. <laughs> nice to meet you, Snake. It's an honor to speak to a, a living legend like yourself. What's wrong? Nothing. I just didn't expect a world-class designer of military technology to be so... cute. <laughs> You're just flattering me. No, I'm serious. Well, I know I won't be bored for the next 18 hours. Come on. I can't believe I'm being hit on by the famous Solid Snake. Snake is definitely a horn dog in this game, and the ladies certainly seem to like him as well, apparently. Remember, except for your binoculars, you're naked. You need to arm yourself with whatever weapons you can find. I remember. First, I'm strip-searched by Dr. Naomi here, and then all my weapons are taken away. Imagine yourself put in that position. Well, if you make it back in one piece, maybe I'll let you do a strip-search on me. I'll hold you to that, Doctor. Damn, Snake has a lot of incentive to get through this mission and back home alive, it seems. 
Another fun fact, when playing this game for the first time, my mother happened to be downstairs and heard Naomi say what she said just now, and she got really pissed at my stepdad for letting me play a clearly adult game. He just laughed and I shrugged, and we both just carried on. Anyhow, going back to Mei Ling really quick. You have to call her on your codec if you want to save your game onto your PlayStation memory card. Veterans of the game know exactly how awesome Mei Ling is, not just because she can save your game, but because she loves dropping the occasional proverb on you and giving you some advice. Snake, listen to what Lo Chi said. He who knows that enough is enough will always have enough. Just because you see an item doesn't mean that you always have to get it. If you don't really need it, think twice before you stick your neck out. It might not be worth it. Wow, you know all sorts of great quotes, don't you? I'll share some more quotes with you if you like. I'm looking forward to it. But to tell you the truth, I'd like to learn more about you. <laughs> well, I'll think about it. I never get tired of hearing those. They are so much better than a fortune cookie. Now, there's one important thing that I haven't really talked about yet when it comes to the gameplay. While the name of the game is Stealth, what happens if you get spotted? Things get turned up to 11 if this happens, and while it's possible to run away from your attackers or kill them all, the enemy absolutely shows no mercy if you're discovered. Allow me to recreate the very first time I was discovered and how that went. So, from where we're at right now, there's a heliport in front of us that's being patrolled by a couple of searchlights, and there's an elevated path to the right of the area that we're in right now. I usually head in that direction, favoring staying to the outside of the area. While heading up and to the right, you'll discover that snow has fallen on the ground. You leave behind footprints, and I always thought that was kind of neat. As we move towards the facility on the right-hand side, there's a metal structure in the shape of a square about as tall as we are. The first time through, I ran past this structure and then immediately panicked because I didn't see the guard that was heading my way in front of me. I was able to turn around in time and I made my way back to that metal structure I just passed. I figured I would wait out the guard and then slip by, easy peasy. And then... The unthinkable happened. The guard stopped, looked down, and said, Whose footprints are these? His blue cone of vision on the radar turned red, and he started following my footprints. What in the actual fuck? I legit panicked at this point, and my stepdad was trying to get me to move. These guys are smart enough to spot and follow my footprints? I was beside myself. And that moment of disbelief and hesitation was my undoing because the guard had closed the distance, rounded the corner, and spotted me. In that moment, I heard the sound that would be seared into my memory for the rest of my life, and a sound that would transcend the ages. As soon as you're discovered, your radar becomes unusable and you'll enter alert mode. In alert mode, enemies know your position and will actively move to pursue you and they will actively try to kill you. 
Early in the game, it doesn't take much to bring you down, and you have fuck all for weapons, so your best bet is to get the hell out of dodge. While you can punch and kick with the circle button, that requires you to put yourself in harm's way, so I suggest you just get the hell out of there. In order to get out of alert mode, you need to break the enemy's line of sight. Where your radar used to be, you'll see a number. 99.99. When you break line of sight, that number will start to count down. When it reaches zero, you'll leave alert mode, but you'll enter evasion mode. The counter resets back to 99 and slowly starts to count down again. In this mode, the enemy is actively searching for you and not following a patrol pattern. You need to stay out of sight until the counter reaches zero again, and if you can, the guards will give up and things will go back to normal. At this point, your radar will be restored as well. But in that moment where I panicked for the first time, I was rediscovered. Try as I might, I kept taking bullets to the chest. I even tried to fight back with hand-to-hand -hand combat, only to be butted with the ends of the guards' rifles. But try as I might, I was no match, and soon my mission was over. Snake, are you okay? Snake? Snake? I remember my eyes being a little wide as the silence pierced the air. Campbell desperately trying to call Snake. Snake unable to answer on account of him being dead because I hesitated. My stepfather's disappointing gaze falling onto me. Well, this game was not screwing around, and that would be the last time I would hesitate. I pressed the continue button and jumped right back in. There's a lot more when it comes to the gameplay in Metal Gear Solid, but I think I'm going to stop there for now. Much of this game's nuances are the things that you just need to discover for yourself. But taking a step back and looking at Metal Gear from afar, I continue to be impressed with the game's revolutionary take on the snealth genre of video games. Again, while basic by today's standards, I cannot deny how much fun I tend to have when moving about the world and trying to slip past unsuspecting enemies. While the radar system is almost an easy button, it's very important to the overall experience. I loved being able to slip into the boots of Solid Snake, and using the tools that the game gives me, example, the radar and the ability to make noise, I could plan out how I would move through an area and know that my plans would go off without a hitch, so long as I was paying attention to what was happening around me. Oftentimes in other stealth games, I would find myself getting caught or discovered and not really understanding what I had done wrong. In Metal Gear Solid, the rules were simple, and it didn't make the idea of sneaking around complicated for the player, which is a huge reason why I think so many players found this game to be so accessible. While there are plenty of items and gadgets to make your life easier, such as thermal goggles, a mind detector, and the series' iconic cardboard box, you can succeed in this game using all these things or absolutely none of them. One thing that continues to impress me about this game is the environments and camera angles. 
While you would think a free-roaming camera that you can control with your right thumbstick would be ideal, the developers did a fantastic job with the static camera angles. Most of the time, the view will be top-down, meaning you'll be looking down on Snake from above. But at times, the camera will move automatically to follow you, or move around to avoid walls or other obstructions. While I do generally prefer a camera that I can control in 3D games, the camera views in this game were masterfully done. I feel this way because at no point did I find myself concerned with the camera. It was always positioned in such a way that I had enough information to make decisions and move around. The radar enhanced this, of course, but in a game like this, I don't want to constantly have to mess with the camera view. And if there was a point where I couldn't quite tell what was going on, the first-person view option always helped. Even though I couldn't move around while I was in that view, I liked taking a breath and using it to collect myself and get a scoping of my surroundings. I have a lot of fun memories with this game, especially the very first time I played it. It did so many unique and memorable things. The game's overarching story wasn't all that complicated, but it was rife with political intrigue and backstory. The game really speaks to the real-life threat of nuclear weapons, and it does it in such a way that it's fairly based on fact and doesn't come off too preachy, or at least I didn't think so. One thing I used to do was call everybody I could on the codec as often as I could as I progressed through the story. There is so much dialogue in this game, and I'd be willing to bet over half of it is dialogue that you'll only hear in codec conversations that you initiate. None of it is required to have an enjoyable gameplay experience, but the more you hear, the more you connect with the characters and this world. There's actually one member of your support team that you are not required to talk to in any capacity. At least not that I remember. Her name is Nastasha, and she acts as your resident expert in nuclear weapons as well as an expert in military weapon systems. If you equipped an item or a weapon and then call Nastasha, she'll tell you all about the thing that you have and how best to use it. If you ever wanted to know the intricacies of cardboard and cardboard boxes, put one on and then give Nastasha a call. You'll thank me later. More than that, though, she'll go into detail with any of the weapons that you're carrying. I used to love listening to her talk about the different weapons that you could find in the game. I don't consider myself a gun nut or anything in real life, but I do have an appreciation for real-life firearms and weapon systems. Every now and then, my wife and I will go to a gun range near us and put some bullets down range. A lot of what I learned about firearms, I learned from Nastasha growing up. Things like what a bullet's caliber means, what a bullpup-style rifle is, what it means when a revolver is single-action versus double-action, and even that you sometimes need to take the curvature of the Earth into account when you're doing some extremely long-distance shooting. It all fascinated me, and I loved hearing her and all the other characters speak to Snake about whatever their area of expertise was. Master Miller, who was the resident survival expert on your support team, had some great advice that's real-world inspired. 
He'll even sometimes break the fourth wall and tell you to go to the bathroom when you need to because you don't know when a long cutscene might happen. Master was one of my favorites to listen to and learn from. Though, there was a point I realized he sounded a lot like Liquid Snake. People who have been through war and survived develop a kind of sixth sense to warn them of danger. Trust your instincts as a soldier, as a gamer. Nah, it's probably just a coincidence. Speaking of the fourth wall breaking stuff again, one of my favorite, yet frustrating memories comes from one of these instances. After you rescue Baker, the arms tech president, you have to locate Merrill. Merrill happens to be the colonel's niece, and when you discover she has a codec on her, you have to call her on her frequency in order to advance the story. Codec? Yes, she stole it from the guard. If she still has it, you should be able to contact her. I'm sure she still has it. What frequency was she at? Oh yeah, let, let me tell you, it's... Oh, sorry, I forgot. Damn! Oh, that's right. It should be on the back of the CD case. Try to contact her. I'll contact her right away. Wait, what? We'll contact her right away? What CD case are you talking about, Snake? In that conversation, Snake in the game is given a floppy disk, and I assume the frequency was written on that. But no matter what I did with that disk in the inventory screen, Meryl's frequency remained hidden from me. For about 20 minutes, my stepdad and I traded off the controller to each other, and we started searching and researching areas that we figured might have some sort of clue. Finally, he got pissed off and went upstairs and left me to figure it out. So, I did the only thing I could think of doing. I opened up the codec and I started calling every frequency one by one. 140.00. Nothing. 140.01. Nothing. Eventually, I found Meryl's frequency, and when she popped up on screen, I screamed for my stepdad to come back. At that point, all was well, but it wasn't until a few days later that I figured out exactly what Baker's words really meant. When I was pulling the game out to jump into another game session, I found myself picking it up and looking at the back. There, at the bottom, among all the other gameplay screenshots, was a screenshot of the codec screen. It was of Snake and Meryl, and her codec frequency was clear as day. Baker was talking about the game case. Hideo Kojima, you son of a bitch. I have a lot of other awesome memories of this game growing up, too. A few of them involve the game's many boss battles with the members of Foxhound. From a writing perspective, while the game's characters weren't super deep, they had just enough personality and nuance to them that they were immediately likable and sometimes relatable. Revolver Ocelot, who uses a western-style six-shooter as his firearm of choice, was pretty fun to battle. As a character, I always found him intriguing, and he always seemed like he knew something that we didn't. I wouldn't know how true that was until the very end of the game. 
His boss battle that takes place fairly early on in the game is pretty standard, but it's a good old-fashioned gun battle. The middle of the room is booby-trapped with C4, so you have to run around the outside while trying to hit Ocelot with your very own gun. Revolvers are nice weapons, but their reload time is horrendously slow. All you need to do is use that to your advantage, and the battle is easily won. The back-and-forth banter is pretty fun in this battle as well. I remember my stepdad laughing a little out loud when Ocelot dropped this gem. I love to reload during a battle. There's nothing like the feeling of slamming a long silver bullet into a well-greased chamber. In the interest of time, I'm not going to get into detail regarding most of the boss encounters, but I will say all of them were unique and required a specific tactic or strategy in order to see yourself the winner. You can call Campbell on your codec during each battle, and Naomi will give you some pretty decent background information on your opponents, as well as some battle tactics, which I thought was pretty cool. But of all the boss battles that you have in this game, I wanted to make sure that I talked about a few that were my absolute favorites. I think what makes Metal Gear Solid so special is how the game's stories and characters were written. There's a lot of fantastical things going on with the plot, and there are some characters that, in normal circumstances, you'd question their existence and purpose. But when a cyborg ninja, yes, I said ninja, of all things, makes his appearance and promptly cuts off Revolver Ocelot's hand, do you question it? No, you do not. You just accept it as reality and file it away as one of those just another thing that is happening in this game. When the ninja makes his appearance, he's cloaked in a type of stealth camouflage that makes him nearly invisible to the naked eye. It's creepy, a little unnerving, and a little scary, not gonna lie. What's more unsettling about the whole thing is the ninja seems to know Snake, and while you as the player would have no idea who this person is, it's enough to rattle Snake to the core once his identity is actually revealed. When you do finally catch up to the ninja, it's when you're on your way to meet up with Hal Emmerich, otherwise known as Otacon. As you approach his lab, Snake hesitates a moment when he hears gunfire and screams coming from the area up ahead. As we move forward, we're shown a scene that veterans of Metal Gear Solid probably have seared into their memory. On screen, we see flashes of the carnage. Multiple bodies litter the floor, blood splattered everywhere, even on the ceiling. What? on earth could have caused this. Then Snake says what most of us come to realize. It looks like they were cut by some type of blade. When we get back control, the mood is immediately dark and foreboding. We can hear an almost ghostly yet machine-like chant. We notice our radar is jammed and it seems to make the narrow hallway even more claustrophobic. I don't know about some of you who played this game before, but as a kid, I was absolutely on edge here. Dare I say, even a little scared. As you move forward, a guard comes around the corner and tells us it was a ghost before falling to the ground and bleeding out, a pool of blood growing out underneath him. 
Whatever was going on was just up ahead and all we could do was face it. When we finally rounded the corner, we see the body of a guard seemingly floating in the air, twitching in pain. In a flash, the body is whipped to the ground and the cyborg ninja appears. Shit, it's him. We watch as he walks into Otacon's lab and then we steal ourselves. We have to secure the doctor and if that means battling the ninja, then so be it. When we move into the lab, Snake confronts the ninja. When Otacon sees the stealth camouflaged individual coming towards him, he does what any sensible person would do and he takes a hot steaming piss in his pants. I always thought that was humorous. Anyway, after a brief exchange between the ninja and Snake, the confrontation begins. The ninja looks right at Snake and says to him, Now, make me feel it. Make me feel alive again. We're given control of Snake, and the first thing most of us will probably do is pump this guy full of lead. Using the Thomas, an assault rifle that we come across, we unload on the ninja. But just like something out of the Matrix, he uses his katana blade and deflects all incoming bullets. Absolutely unreal. Other weapons are equally as useless, and the ninja just taunts us. Snake, you can't defeat me with a weapon like that. But then it hits us. It's not so much a taunt as it is a hint. We need to fight the ninja barehanded. If we unequip our weapon and lay a three-hit-punch-kick combo on him, he'll take some damage. That's how we need to bring this guy down. So, the table has been set. This is a bare-knuckle fight to the death. After another successful pummeling, the ninja approves and puts his sword away. Good. Now we can fight as warriors. Hand-to-hand. It is the basis of all combat. Only a fool trusts his life to a weapon. This entire fight is just incredible to me. There's no evasion mechanics or anything like that, so the fight can feel a bit clunky when you're trying to move around and looking to find an opening to attack, but as the fight goes on, you'll notice attack patterns from the ninja and you'll start to be able to exploit them and attack when the ninja leaves himself open. But what makes this fight even more incredible, at least to me, is how the ninja reacts as you damage him. The ninja seems to like it, and he wants more of it. That's good, Snake! While that all just seems really, really strange, it just made me curious as to who this person really was. Near the middle of the fight, the ninja will start to take a knee. It's very clear that you're wearing him down, but the ninja continues to ask for more. Hurt me more! Just, what the hell is up with this guy? There was finally a point where the ninja says something that made me think that he really does know Snake from somewhere. Do you remember Snake? The feel of battle? The clashing of bone and sinew? Who could this person be? Why is he taking pleasure in all this pain? More! More! 
Why did my mom have to walk in right at that specific part? That's it. I remember that punch. The fight is almost over, and even as a kid, I had always wondered what was happening. It didn't feel like I was fighting a boss anymore. I wasn't so focused on defeating the enemy. I started feeling a little bad for beating on this guy. I've been waiting for this pain. But if this guy wants me to continually beat the shit out of him, I will gladly comply. So when the battle ends and after a quick exchange, Snake realizes who the ninja is. Gray Fox. Who the hell is Gray Fox? Well, if you happened to somehow play the first two Metal Gear games in Japan at the time, you would know. Gray Fox was someone whom Snake rescued in the very first Metal Gear game. Snake was still a rookie, and Gray Fox showed him the ropes and taught him quite a bit. In the second game, Snake and Fox were enemies. However, Snake always considered Fox a friend. They were just professionals on opposite sides. Snake actually tries to explain this to Naomi at one point in a Kodak conversation, but I couldn't help but find the idea fascinating. The little bit of backstory that was revealed in Metal Gear Solid made the ninja and the fight that we just had with him much more intriguing, which in turn made the end of this game much more impactful for me. Now, we are pretty balls deep into this episode, and I have not made a single mention of the true threat in this game. The one thing that stands between peace and utter destruction. The one thing that can change the world. How is Foxhound going to launch their nuclear weapon? Using a nuclear-equipped walking battle tank. Metal Gear. That's right, Snake. Metal Gear. We learn pretty early on that Metal Gear is somewhere on the base and that we may have to find a way to destroy it if worst comes to worst. Spoiler alert, we eventually have to do battle with it, and even though I don't think the battle is all that hard, I think it is incredibly epic and extremely exciting. Near the end of the game, Liquid Snake tricks you into activating Metal Gear by using the shape-changing PAL key. Does anyone remember that? In case you don't remember or have no idea what I'm talking about, you have this key card that you find that will change shape depending on the temperature of the area that you're in. A shape memory alloy, if you will. Shape memory alloy? Yes! It's a material that changes shape at different temperatures. The key is made out of it. The card key changes shape at different temperatures. So this key is actually three keys in one. Clever. You have to use this card when it's room temperature, when it's cold, and then again when it's hot. It was a pretty neat idea, but that part of the late game was pretty tedious and it got kind of boring, at least for my tastes. During this particular part of the game, in a shocking twist, we find out that Master Miller was Liquid Snake in disguise the whole time, and he manipulated Snake into using the keycards to activate Metal Gear when Snake thought he was doing the opposite. When Metal Gear activates, Liquid wastes no time hopping aboard and taking control. It slowly raises to an upper platform, and when it comes to a stop, the game makes it clear that this is a David versus Goliath sort of a situation. 
The sheer scale of this battle was something I always appreciated, and the battle music that plays is perfect to set the tone for a battle with such high stakes. All you really have to do, though, is shoot Stinger missiles at the Ray Dome, a shield-looking thing on Metal Gear's shoulder. Metal Gear, all the while, is going to be throwing everything it has at you. Guided missiles, machine gun fire, and even a laser mounted to its underside. The guided missiles are pretty hard to dodge, but overall the fight isn't too bad, even despite its large scale. When you hit the Raydome enough times and deplete Metal Gear's life gauge, it seems like we've destroyed it, but turns out that Metal Gear endures. Before we get the chance to launch another offensive, Liquid closes the gap and prepares to stomp on Snake and make him into a fine paste. At this point, the ninja jumps on scene and, in an incredible feat of strength, he holds up Metal Gear's massive foot with one hand. That cyborg exoskeleton is apparently pretty powerful, and as ridiculous as this scene is, we just accept it as normal given everything else that we've seen up to this point in the game. The ninja confirms he is indeed Grey Fox, and he and Snake have a small exchange before Fox rushes out to confront Metal Gear. Fox's agility is unreal, and he's able to juke and dodge all around Metal Gear's machine gun fire. We'll also notice that Fox has a sort of laser gun attached to his right arm now, because his story is already going full-on anime at this point, we may as well just fucking go with it. While jumping in the air, Liquid is able to nail Fox with Metal Gear's belly laser, and Fox's left arm is severed. But Fox continues to push forward. He jumps up on a high platform, but just before he can fire off his laser, Liquid uses Metal Gear's beak-like cockpit and smashes Fox against the wall. All seems lost, but Fox finds a way to let loose a volley of laser fire and destroys the Raydome. This forces the cockpit to open up and it exposes Liquid. All Snake needs to do is fire a Stinger missile into the cockpit and end it all. But if he does, he'll kill Fox as well. In dramatic fashion, the player is given back control, but no matter how much we want to, or how hard we press the fire button on our controller, the game will not let us fire a missile, so we just have to listen to Fox's monologue for a minute or two. It's all pretty cheesy, not gonna lie, but it really is all well put together, and everyone's voice actor was just at the top of their game here. While I'm not vested in Fox as much as Snake is, these next few moments can sort of be kind of heart-wrenching. Liquid pulls Fox off the high ledge and down to the floor and proceeds to step on him. He's not killed just yet, but Liquid, the nice guy that he is, allows Fox one final farewell. Snake, we're not tools of the government or anyone else. Fighting was the only thing, the only thing I was good at. But at least I always fought for what I believed in. Snake, farewell. Liquid raises Metal Gear's massive foot before delivering the killing blow, and once he delivers it, Metal Gear roars like an inhuman beast. 
and it found him. You see, you can't protect anyone, not even yourself. Die! Control returns to the player and you're back to fighting Metal Gear, but this time you just need to launch missiles directly at Liquid. It should be a fairly easy victory, but I'll caution you. If you die here, you'll have to fight Metal Gear again from the very beginning, and not all the cutscenes that you just experienced are skippable. Ask me how I know that. In any case, when you bring Liquid down and destroy Metal Gear once and for all, you're treated with a ton of dialogue as Liquid spills the beans to Snake regarding his origins, and then you're forced to fight Liquid barehanded on top of Metal Gear. I have to say, while I appreciate the epicness of this moment in particular, the actual fight is... eh, kinda so-so. Plus, you have a time limit. I don't mind time limits if they make a sort of story sense, but there is no reason whatsoever to have a time limit on this specific fight. Really, it does absolutely nothing for the gameplay experience. Sure, time limits add stress, but if you repeatedly fail your objective, it's no longer a stressor and more of a point of annoyance. Time limits should exist purely to enhance the moment, and not be used to cut it short if the player isn't skilled enough or fast enough to do the thing that the developers wanted them to do. The very, very last part of Metal Gear Solid is actually a time segment, but we'll end the show talking about that and how it was actually done well. Now, this episode is going pretty long, just as I expected, but I could drone on about Metal Gear Solid forever. So many things I haven't talked about or mentioned, it's almost criminal. But if there's one thing we need to absolutely dive into before this episode is over, it's that epic boss fight with Psycho Mantis. Now, whether or not you've played Metal Gear Solid before, there's a decent chance that if you're remotely into video games, you might have heard about this fight and why it is, without a doubt, the most memorable boss fight in all of gaming. You fight Mantis about halfway through the game, and he's Foxhound's psychic. When you first move towards the boss fight, he actually takes over the mind of Meryl, who is traveling with you at that point, and turns her against you. You need to knock her out without killing her to break Mantis' mind control, but in doing so, this triggers Mantis to reveal himself and show you his true powers. What makes Mantis so special in this moment is how he interacts with the player, and it's this interaction that I cannot stress the importance of playing Metal Gear on the original hardware if you can. Mantis is going to screw with you a little bit in this moment, and it is absolutely the most wonderful thing that you'll experience in this entire game. At least, that's how I felt when I was a kid. How about we relive that moment, shall we? When dialogue between you and Mantis begins, he starts off by demonstrating his powers to you. Now, let me read your mind. No, perhaps I should say your past. At this point, Mantis is looking at how you've played the game up to this point, and he will judge you based on how many times you've been discovered, how many times you've died up to this point, and how many times you've fallen into pitfall traps. 
There's several combinations of dialogue here, but assuming you're playing a pretty good game, we'll get something like this. You are a very methodical man, the type that always kicks his tires before he leaves. You are a highly skilled warrior, well suited to this stealth mission. You are extremely careful of traps. You are either very cautious, or you are a coward. Not bad, pretty accurate I'd say. But my gameplay stats are all tracked, it's nothing special. Mantis apparently reads our minds at this point and further pokes at the player. Still don't believe me. Now I'll read more deeply into your soul. Now, when Mantis says he's going deeper into our souls, he's actually talking about our PlayStation memory card. Based on what our memory card has on it, Mantis will call out some of the games that we've been playing if we happen to have some specific ones on our memory card at the time. When I was growing up, my memory card never had anything on it that Mantis would call out. But I had a few friends who had played Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and Mantis said this to them. I can see into your mind. You like Castlevania, don't you? I can't imagine what someone would have thought back then. At the time, it was not at all clear that Mantis was reading your memory card. How the hell did he know what we liked? So, you like Suikoden. Suikoden was another game that he would call out if you had Suikoden saved at on your memory card. I really wish I could have experienced this as a kid, but even today, it's still a pretty novel concept. Mantis will also detect whether you've saved your Metal Gear Solid game often or not, and comment on that as well. I would usually hear this from Mantis. Hmm. You have not saved often. You are somewhat reckless. Now here's where it gets even better. While most players were probably wowed at this point, Mantis will continue to press his power on the player. You still don't believe me? I will show you my psychokinetic power! I remember looking at my stepdad with utter confusion. What is he gonna do now? Put your controller on the floor. Uh, do what now? Put it down as flat as you can. I was a little confused back then, but I put my controller on the coffee table in front of us. That's good. Now I will move your controller by the power of my will alone. Mantis started to thrust his arms forward, and right on cue, the controller started to vibrate. Each time Mantis moved his arms on screen, the controller would vibrate harder, and the controller would start to move around. Holy shit! This is real! Mantis's powers are real! What do you think now? Can you feel my power now? Yes! Yes, Mantis! I believe you! Please, show us more! The demonstration is over. Aww. I remember being in awe at the spectacle, and there's something about seeing that raw for the very first time. Anyone who's ever experienced that growing up, I can guarantee that is a core gaming memory for you. 
my dad and I were stunned at this innovative way to pull the player into the experience. It was such a great use of tech, and looking back on it now, even with all the technological advances that we've made today, nothing will top the time Mantis moved my controller with his will alone. But it doesn't end there. When the battle begins, we find out quickly that Mantis will continue to read our minds somehow. Any attack we throw at him, he's able to dodge in the blink of an eye. It's almost incredible to watch, but after a while, you start to panic. How exactly is this happening? We've got no chance against him at this rate. We can call the Colonel and Naomi on the codec and get some advice, but nothing seems to be valuable. At one point, the Colonel tells us to clear our minds and be a blank slate. Yeah, take it from me, that doesn't work either. I tried to think of nothing, and it did nothing. But if you find yourself dying in this battle several times, or you continue to call Campbell enough times, he starts to slowly figure things out. He's using his psychic ability to read your controller's moves. That's how he's evading your attack. You've got to do something so he can't read your controller's moves. Think, there must be some way. I remember racking my brain, trying to figure out how to get Mantis from reading my controller, but I was just too dumbfounded to work anything out. But finally, Campbell lets you know exactly what you need to do. I've got it. Use the controller port. Plug your controller into controller port 2. If you do that, he won't be able to read your mind. Of course! Why didn't I think of that? Because I would never have thought of that. Once Campbell said this, I ran over to our PlayStation and swapped our controller from port 1 to port 2. As soon as I got back into the game and fired on Mantis, I smiled as soon as I saw that he took some damage. Mantis even cried out in confusion because he couldn't read our minds anymore. In the heat of battle, I was more focused on beating Mantis, but when the battle was over and I had a moment to process what had just happened, I realized that what I had just done would undoubtedly live on as one of the most creative ways for a gaming console to impact gameplay ever. Even if your second controller port didn't work for some reason, the developers had a way to still have the player win the fight by having you destroy a couple of statues in the room that you were in, but this right here was it. You can look at all the advances in gaming hardware like the DualShock controller itself, the N64 Rumble Pack, the DualSense PS5 controller, cameras, Xbox Kinect motion capture system, Nothing will top the time that you stopped a psychic soldier from reading your mind by switching your controller to the other port. As we start to wind things down, there are still a lot of things that can be said about Metal Gear Solid. It's a big reason why this game continues to be as well known as it is today. For me though, I'll never forget how this game made me feel. When I was younger, I'll admit some of the story elements and thematic elements were completely lost on me, but when I replayed this game recently, I found myself still emotionally attached to the story, but also feeling a sort of rush when I was playing through certain areas of the game. 
This is mostly thanks to the mostly amazing boss battles, calling out specifically the fight with the ninja, Metal Gear itself, and even the hind helicopter, which I didn't even get a chance to talk about. But what always gets me is the very end of the game. You've defeated Liquid Snake, and you need to evacuate the facility because the US government has decided that it's just gonna drop a bomb and just obliterate Shadow Moses Island and cover up everything that's happened. When the story is near its conclusion, you finally learned everything behind the mission that you were sent on. The government was hoping to send in Snake to secure Metal Gear undamaged for themselves. And to do that, they infected Snake with a virus that was genetically engineered to kill specific people, namely the members of Foxhound, the hostages, and anyone involved in this operation. People have been dying all around you, left and right, and you can't figure out why that is. But once it was revealed that you were just a pawn in this entire game, you can't help but feel a sense of frustration, but you also feel a sense of resolve when it comes to finally ending things. The game ends with the stereotypical self-destruct type of ending. You have a 10 minute timer and you need to evacuate the facility before the government drops bombs and obliterates everything. You find a truck and either Meryl or Otacon will drive it depending on who's with you at that point in the story. Snake takes up a machine gun on the back of the truck and you have to shoot any guards or obstacles in your path in order for you to move forward. It can be pretty hard lining up shots since you're in the third person view but you can hold down the first-person view button and fire at the same time here. The game doesn't tell you this, so if you've never known that, you are welcome. But regardless of how this part of the game controls, I always find it exhilarating. The music that plays here is just perfect. It's exciting, it's thrilling, and you can't help but just get lost in the whole experience. That's how it is for me, at least. Eventually, you'll kill enough guards and blow past a few checkpoints, and you'll think that you're home free. But somehow, Liquid is still alive and he's gunning for you, speeding after you in a vehicle of his own. He has an assault rifle in one hand, so you need to keep shooting Liquid so he doesn't shoot back at you. All the while, the timer that marks your destruction is counting down. The camera angles change, Liquid tries ramming your vehicle, and eventually, near the end, you're both just trading bullets back and forth, hoping and praying that you have enough health to survive. Finally, you reach the end of the tunnel and daylight appears. However, you and Liquid crash into each other and the screen goes white. Now, while I'm personally not a fan of the Escape Before Everything Blows Up ending, this particular ending was really well done. What I liked most about it, when I look back on it, is the fact that the 10 minute timer actually does nothing when it expires. While there is a story reason for this, Colonel Campbell was able to call off the strike, I liked that the timer existed just to make the segment a little bit more exciting, and there was no real danger of you running out of time and having to play that section over and risk being pulled out of the immersion. How many times did you die in other games due to a timer running out, and once you replayed it, that tense section was now just an annoyance? I really appreciated how they ended off Metal Gear Solid, and it was just a little thing I wanted to mention. 
When the final cutscenes play out, you find out that the virus everyone is infected with, called the fox dye virus, finally kills Liquid. But then Snake realizes that, because he and Liquid are genetic twins, fox dye is going to kill him at some point too. The game makes a somewhat sudden shift into the idea that life is meant to be lived and enjoyed despite the inevitable. And while it almost seemed like it was shoehorned in at the end, it did make me take a step back and look at Snake as a character. While it wasn't always obvious, he had a decent character arc throughout it all. He started off as a cold and efficient killer because it's all he ever really knew. Just a man who lived in the moment and got the job done no matter what it took. Over time and over many conversations with his support team and with Otacon and even with Merrill, Snake starts to open up and see that there's more to life than just the mission. What I'll always remember about Metal Gear Solid is how the game made me want to put it down when I was done and actually go outside. That sounds like a joke, but I absolutely mean that. The ending was so well done, and the scenery was done up here masterfully as well. Some of the game's characters had a renewed lease on life, and what it means to live, and it was relayed to the player in such a way that it made me want to take a break and almost take stock of things. Snake knew he was infected with fox dye and didn't know when his time would be up. He asked, hell, almost pleaded with Naomi to tell him how long he had left. But at the end of the day, though, do any of us really know how long we have left? Naomi, Liquid died from Fox Die too. What about me? When am I gonna go? That's up to you. What do you mean? Everybody dies when their time is up. Yeah. So when's mine up? It's up to you how you use the time left to you. Live, Snake. It's all I can say to you. And that brings us to the end of another trek into the gaming wildlands, my friends. This has been episode 50 of the Retro Wildlands, Metal Gear Solid, for the original Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. I probably went a little overboard with the episode's length, sound effects, and music, but I really adore this game and I couldn't think of any other way I wanted to show that to people. And even then, I feel like we were only able to scratch the surface on what this game has to offer. I know I left out a lot, and if I didn't talk about the thing that you were hoping I would most, I apologize. There's just so much here, and there's so much to this game, that I'm really happy with what we were able to squeeze in today, but... I do encourage you to go back and play this game if you haven't before, and re-experience those things that mean a lot to you. 
Metal Gear may not be as smooth an experience as it used to be back in the day, but this game is not only still relevant today, it's still better than some of the newer games coming out nowadays, and that really says something about it. I had a great time replaying this game, and there's certainly a lot here if you want to get lost in a pretty good story. Just be warned, however, the further you dive deep into this game and then go deeper into the other entries in the Metal Gear Solid series, the more convoluted the story becomes, so just use some caution. Go too far and you'll start saying things like Lolly Lule Lo, and it's all downhill from there. Still, if you have a chance, give Metal Gear Solid some of your time. Whether you've played it before or you just heard me spoil the shit out of it, it's still well worth your time. If you like the show today and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcasting platform. With the time and effort I'm putting into each episode and how much other stuff I have going on in my regular life, I can't commit to a release schedule like some of the cooler podcasts can. I write, record, edit, and post shows whenever I'm able to, so subscribing to the show will make sure that you're notified the moment something new pops up. Now, if you really like the show and want to help me spread the word, you can either tell your friends about the Retro Wildlands, or I would appreciate it if you could give us a good review. Spotify allows you to give a star rating, which is awesome, but platforms like iTunes, Podchaser, and Podbean, the platform that I use to host the show, will let you leave a written review. If you have a spare moment, let me know your thoughts. Good reviews will help circulate the show around, and I'd love to hear from you if you've had a good time hanging out with me. But please, do not feel obligated to do so. At the end of the day, and I say this at the end of every episode, which means I mean it, I'm just glad that you've spent your time with me and listened to my show. It means more to me than you'll ever know. So, what's coming up next? I keep finding myself going back to games on the original Nintendo that I've been meaning to get to. While there's plenty of good ones that I still need to get to, like Bionic Commando, Dr. Mario, Punch-Out, and Battletoads, I keep getting pulled towards games that I vaguely remember from my youth. One such game is one that I've been playing a bit here and there, and there's a good chance it or one of the games I just mentioned above will be next on the show. If you don't already, be sure to follow the podcast on social media. As soon as I settle on what's next, social media is where you'll find out. I hope you can join us next time when we saddle up and head into the gaming wildlands for our next adventure. There's plenty of games to play, but the more I think about it, I can't help but want to scratch an itch that I have lately. I feel the need, the need for speed. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands.
The entire unit was wiped out. Those two are still alive. The Vector? Yes, sir. Fox die should become activated soon. Right on schedule. Yes, sir. I recovered all of Rex's dummy warhead data. No, sir. My cover is intact. Nobody knows who I really am. Yes, the DARPA chief knew my identity, but he's been disposed of. Yes, the inferior one was the winner after all. That's right. Until the very end, Liquid thought he was the inferior one. Yes, sir, I agree completely. It takes a well-bounced individual such as yourself to rule the world. No, sir. No one knows that you were the third one, Solidus. What should I do about the woman? Yes, sir. I'll keep her under surveillance. Yes. Thank you. Goodbye. Mr. President.